There's a quote uh, by one of my favorite teachers in the States, theologian, uh, John Piper. It bubbles up to the surface about four or five times a year in my preaching. Um, there's so many things that spin off of it that uh, I can't help but do that. Um, it's really one of my favorite things ever written by a man who was not writing scripture. Um, and I think it helps us understand the point of last week's sermon, which is, if we've been born again, what happens? Anybody remember? Remember the song we sang uh, or listened to? It spills out. And it's only natural that it would spill out because all of creation is God spilling out. Uh, let me share the quote with you. Uh, you'll, it'll be familiar to some of you old timers. Piper writes, in creation, God went public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. There's something about the fullness of God's joy that inclines it to overflow. We talked about this last week. If, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us, there will be an overflow. It's unmistakable. It'll be conspicuous. If it has really happened, there'll be an overflow. He's saying the same thing about the person of God. He says there's an expansive quality to God's joy. It wants to share itself. So the eternal happiness of the triune God spills over into the work of creation and redemption. All of God's works are simply the overflow of his infinite exuberance for his own excellence. Now that's the God of the Bible. If you can find it, I, I picked up, uh, I saw a three minute snippet from John Piper preaching on what, did he, what was it? What was it? it was, I can't remember the title. Something about the glory of God, the purpose for which God created. It's only three minutes long, but it's so good. I think I'm going to talk about it some next week, um, which is, of course, Easter. Um, Got to love the phrase infinite exuberance. I've always loved that. I uh, wish I'd have coined it myself. It means to be joyously unrestrained. Joyously unrestrained. That's the biblical God. He did not create from want. He did not create because he was lonely. He did not create out of need. He created out of fullness. And I think it's evident to anyone who's got their eyes open and thinking out in the world. So, you know this about, about the biblical God, right? You know this about Jesus, you remember what Hebrews 12.2 um, says about him. It was for joy th that was set before him that he endured the cross. That's how, big, that's how big his joy is. That's how big the son's joy is. It enabled him to endure the cross. So that's a good opportunity for us to check ourselves. What's our joy level like in, in, in God, right? God's joy is so huge, he could take on the sins of the elect, right? All the sins of all those who would ever be saved. He, the one who was holy from the very beginning, the one who was uh, righteous from an eternity past, he took on sin. Um, and we'll talk a whole lot about that next week. So God's infinite exuberance, it swallowed up the shame and suffering and abasement of the cross this beautiful picture of God's overflowing exuberance is comparable to what we talked about last week. That if, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us, if we've been born again, if we've been begotten of God, it spills out. 
it spills out. Not simply with our words, of course with our words, but in our deeds. And you heard me read the text. If it's not in our deeds, what? God says, what use is that? What use is it? And we heard some of that last week. Last week we did talk about Sarah Groves, American composer, singer. And her words were, something's changed in me. It broke wide open and it all spilled out. We talked about the fact that she is singing about the John 3, 3 thing, being born again. If it's really happened... It will overflow. There'll be an expansive, as Piper was saying about God, there'll be an expansive quality to it. You can't, you really can't hold it down. Now, obviously, we have hard times in our lives and it's difficult. But I'm talking about um, if you're not in the midst of a trial or difficulty or uh, a great loss or something like that, you, you just almost can't hold down, right? The exuberance that we have for who God is and what he has done for us. The eternal happiness of God has overflowed into creation and providence and the supernatural born of God nature overflows into the life of the believer. So in our text tonight, James is echoing what the New Testament says about true faith. It will be conspicuous. If it's genuine, it will be observable. Your kids will see it. Your spouse will see it. Your colleagues will see it. There's not going to be any doubt. You know, I hear sometimes I hear these stories of, well, I worked with this guy for a long time and never knew he was a Christian. And I'm thinking, well, he's probably not. He's probably not. If you worked for him, if you worked with him for years and you had no idea, okay, I can pretty much guarantee you he's not a Christian. You can't hold it down. You can't hold it down. As we mentioned last week, this is an important and timely message for us. Uh, there's been a devolution in the modern church of what faith actually means. You know, it's been dumbed down. I know I beat this drum, but as I confessed to you last week or the week before, I beat this drum because it was my experience. I was told I was a saved man. I got baptized when I was eight. I prayed the prayer. I made the confession. I was a church member. I was told I was saved. I know I wasn't saved. And 28, when I was converted, <laughs> I know exactly how untrue that was, that, that Doing some steps, doing, some, doing a procedure, doing a formula, doing some methodology will save you. It's just completely, utterly false. You must be born again. And if you do not love Him, if you do not love Him, then I submit you do not know Him. And we know the summation of all the law, right? That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us do that perfectly. But man... We're, we're, we're moving along. We're, we're learning. We're learning what that's supposed to look like. We're learning how to love the Lord as we ought to. You know, this, this dumbed-down version of what faith is, it's biblically unrecognizable. It's just biblically unrecognizable. All through the Old and New Testaments, nobody who had true faith, you know, rested on a one-time experience, I did it when I was eight, I'm saved. No. That's not how the Bible talks about true conversion. As we talked about last week, James chapter 2, God is giving us a reality check. God means for you to, to check um, your faith, the authenticity of it. Is it genuine? Is it saving? 
Um, he says, this is how you can know. The fruit will come out. There'll be fruit. It'll be coming out. Not because you go to church. Not simply because you go to church and say you believe and give mental assent to certain things, but fruit's coming out of your life. So this is what we'll continue to talk about this evening. In the book of James, God says, as clearly as it can be said in human language, saving faith does more than merely hear and merely talk. James 1.22, you guys know the famous text, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So there's this great delusion in much of the modern church. I go to church, God must be proud. That's a delusion. If that's all there is. Of course you should go to church. God commands us to be in church, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we understand that. We should be in the church. We should be serving the church. We should be praying for the church. We should be supporting the church. But that can't be all there is. There's got to be a change in the life. We saw last week, James 1.22 is about the hearers. Last week we talked about the talkers, James 2.14-17. God says those who merely talk are no better than those who merely hear. God says it twice in verses 14 and 16. You heard me read the text. What use is faith that only talks? This is God's question. It's not my question. It's God's question. It's a rhetorical device. The obvious answer is it's no good at all. It's no good at all. It's just religion. It's just another kind of religion. I shared that great, and I love this, you know, again, the message Bible, not the Bible. It's a paraphrase, but this is Eugene Peterson's best paraphrase, James uh, 2.17, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? And, I, you know, I, I, wish, I wish the whole time I was growing up in this church I grew up in, I wish somebody had confronted me and said, Jim, your life is outrageous nonsense. You profess to be a Christian, your life, your words, your deeds, it's outrageous nonsense. I, I wish someone had confronted me with that. You know, I wish I'd have heard a sermon like this. Maybe I did, and I was so tuned out I didn't pay any attention to it. But this is an important message for us here in James chapter 2. It's obvious that God-given faith changes the life. And it's obvious that biblical faith will spill out. And again, there's that un unforgettable illustration, verses 18, 19, and 20, where he says, You believe God is one? Oh, that's great. You're orthodox? That's great. The demons believe it too. You know, so what is basically is, is a way we could paraphrase that. So what? The demons believe. And he finishes there. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In very clear language, God tells us three things about faith without works. It's dead. It's akin to demon faith. And it's useless. So last week, and there's a summary of last week. We talked about faith that does not save. This week, we talk about faith that does save. Okay? So he, he turns the page here, and uh, he's using Abraham and Rahab as illustrations. I'm sure that most of you are probably familiar with the text. I'm going to read it, verse 21 to 26. Let's just, let me just read that all together, and then we'll talk through it for a few minutes. James 2, 21. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, meaning it was consummated, it was matured, it was realized, it was seen, okay? Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in that same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I, I, I just want to make the point here. He brings up Abraham, but this is not an ethnic issue. Abraham is the father of all true believers, right? Jew and Gentile. So he, he uses, he, he's, he's obviously talking mostly to Jews, but this is not an ethnicity issue. This is a spiritual issue. Abraham is the father of all who truly believe. So it's not an ethnic illustration. Abraham is the universal illustration of all who believe. And what did we see in Abraham? We saw a life given over to God, right? And God worked his perfect purpose through Abraham. It's what happens when you give your life over to God. Again, we're not perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. But a, a giving of your life over to God, God will work His purpose in your life. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul says that the man is justified by faith alone, and he uses Abraham as his illustration. James is saying that a man is also justified through his works and he uses Abraham as his illustration. I love it. Both these men who are writing from two different angles are using the same incident as their illustration. The same man and the same incident. I think we're supposed to understand how important this is. So are Paul and James at odds? We talked about this last week regarding faith and works and justification. Is Paul contradicting James? Is James contradicting Paul? This is a false controversy between uh, Catholics and Protestants. It's a false controversy. It's just, it's, as I said last week, it's, it's a, a seven-year-old could understand this text. It's not hard to understand. So this would be, this would be equivalent to saying that, that God is contradicting God. Is Paul contradicting James? Is God contradicting God? I mean, that's, that's, that's the equivalent. This is the Word of God. It can't be a contradiction. If you're sensing a contradiction, then, you know, you're hearing it wrong. You're hearing it wrong. And anytime you sense tension and contradiction in the Bible, it's, it's, the problem is with your finite mind, your fallen, finite, carnal, sinful mind. It's not with the Word of God. We need to always have humility with the Word of God. Again, same man, same illustration. We are justified by faith and we are justified by works. Same man, same illustration. I think it's, it's really powerful. And beautiful. I told you last week, there's no contradiction between James and Paul. This is elucidation. This is clarification, illumination, and explanation. Um, Paul perfectly elucidates James, and James perfectly elucidates Paul. I'm going to give you that quote again from John MacArthur. It's a great quote. 
Paul is fighting those who want a salvation to be earned by works. You cannot earn it. I don't care how much religious stuff you do. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot earn it. Ever. MacArthur continues, and James is fighting those who want a salvation that brings no change in the life. If it doesn't bring a change in the life, it's not real. It's not true. You may be religious, but you're not converted. MacArthur continues, Paul is saying salvation is only by grace alone, and James is saying the salvation by grace alone will always produce works. This is not hard. This is not hard to understand. There is no argument, disagreement, or tension between these men. Abraham is not only the spiritual father of all who believe, his life of faith illustrates the beautiful balance between faith and works in the life of every true believer. Both Paul and James quote Genesis 15, 6. You'll remember it. Abraham believed and what? It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed and God reckoned him as righteous. God imputes his son's righteousness to the believer, right? The Old Testament saint is looking forward and the New Testament believer is looking back. But we're all looking at, this, we're all looking at Messiah, right? We're all looking at Messiah, in case that's a little confusing to you. So Abraham believed the word of God. He trusted in the promises of God and God uh, uh, imputed righteousness to him and he was justified before the Lord. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, meaning it was counted to him, credited to him, imputed to him. By and in uh, true faith, God imputes right, the righteousness of Jesus to the true believer. Romans 4.2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not before God. <laughs> no man can boast. You're not, you're not going to stand in front of Yahweh and say, Well, I did all the sacraments. You're not going to stand before Yahweh and say, well, I, did, I, did, I was baptized. I prayed that prayer. You're not going to stand before Yahweh and say, well, I attended church almost every Sunday. You're not going to say any of that. That's not going to come up. Right? What did we see in the, uh, in the, in the parables that we talked about, the talents in the, in the minas? Here's what happens with the true believer. <laughs> Jesus will say, he, you know, he's not going to look at your religious resume. He's going to say, um, Welcome. Enter into, your, enter into the, the joy of your father. Um, why, why, do we, why would he speak to us this way? Because there's already a relationship. There's already a relationship. We're not going to show up with our religious bona fides, right? And, and, and impress God with our resume. It, that's, not, that's not what it is. We're already in relationship with him. And he will simply welcome us into his Reward. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans 4 that Abraham's justification was apart from works, apart from circumcision, apart from the law. As Protestants, we should understand this. There should be no confusion here. There should be no confusion. Paul and James are in perfect agreement. Abraham was justified by faith alone, but here's the distinction. James is not simply looking at Abraham's Genesis 15 faith. He's looking at Abraham, Abraham's Genesis 22 faith. When Abraham obeyed God, right? When Abraham was tested, you guys, I'm sure remember the account. 
the message paraphrase again, James 2.23, it's insightful. He says, the full meaning of believe in Scripture, in, in the Scripture sentence here, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, period. But because he, was, he believed God and was set right with God, he obeyed God. Again, not perfectly, but he obeyed God. The day that God came to him and tested him, and we saw this in 1 Peter, right? Your faith will be tested. Will you pass the test? That's between you and God. I have no idea. If you're genuinely converted, you will. If you're born again, you will. If you're, playing, praying, uh, if you're simply playing religion, you won't. You won't pass the test. You'll fold like a cheap suit. Abraham believed and then he acted on what he believed. This is biblical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. He says Abraham believed and, and, and God was set right. And he believed God and was set right with God. This includes his action. His action meshed with his belief. And he was called God's friend. I said this to you last week. I just want to say it again. Uh, this meshing of believing and acting. It's the eternal life of the believer overflowing into the temporal life. It's the spiritual life of the believer overflowing into the physical life. It's the supernatural life of the believer overflowing into the natural life. It will be conspicuous. It will be visible. People will be asking you, why do you live like you live? The world lives this way. Why are you living this way? The world talks this way. Why are you talking this way? The world watches this. Why do you refuse to engage in this and watch that? The world should be asking you and me why we are so odd as we talked about a week or so ago. So I'll just ask you, Christian, is the life-changing reality of God's worth, love, and power on display in your life? You know, Hebrews 11 I always go back to Hebrews 11, real men, real women with real faith in a real God, making a real difference in the real world. That's biblical Christianity. That's what it is. Nowhere in Hebrews 11 where, where, where God is defining and illustrating faith as he mentioned church attendance. You say, well, Jim, you're always bringing up church attendance. It's because I was raised in a tradition where if you attended church, you were a Christian. It doesn't matter what anybody said. You were a Christian. You went to church. You had to be a good Christian. You know, even someone as liberal as Billy Graham, who towards the end of his life was pretty liberal. I, I read a quote from him one time. He said, 80 percent of people sitting in churches are unconverted. Now, that's that's a big quote. Now, I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't have any way to to know if that's true. But I'll, I'll say based on my experience, he's not far off. If he's off, he's not far off. People are trusting in their, their nominational formulas. And this is a great blasphemy and an insult before God. It touches the glory of God in the salvation of His people. Of course, we've talked about that. So how do we know Abraham was justified in Genesis chapter 15? Because Genesis chapter 22 happened. Uh, the test came, Genesis 22, God tested Abraham. Oh, guess what? He's going to test you too. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. Some of you have experienced this. 
um, your faith will be tested. It will be found to be true or false. It just, it's what the Bible is revealing to us. God said, take Isaac, your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, why was this a perfect test for Abraham? Why was this a perfect test? Because God's promise was supposed to come through Isaac, right? The promise was coming through Isaac. Isaac was the promise. And the Messiah through Isaac was the promise. It was the promise. So Abraham has to do the math. Well, wait a minute. If God's asking me to, to sacrifice the one through whom the promise must come, you know, you've read Hebrews 11. Abraham just reckoned that God was able to raise the dead. And he just got up and obeyed. He never questioned God. He never, you know, consulted with anybody. He didn't wring his hands over it. He got up early the next morning and headed off to Mount Moriah. Right? It's just this unflinching uh, obedience that we see in Abraham in, in chapter 22 of Genesis. Was, was, was his faith real in, in chapter 15? Yeah. We see it in chapter 22, right? We see it. This is what James is talking about. This is why Paul uses Abraham as, as his illustration. This is why James is using Abraham as his illustration. You know, God had promised an old man and a barren woman a son <laughs> through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed it. Even if he had to run, even if he had to, to run a, a knife through the heart of Isaac, he believed it. Now, I'm going to ask you, do you believe God like that? Do you believe God like that? Or is this all just religious routine? I mean, can you believe God like that? Where it makes no sense... You know, there's a lot of mystery here. I'm sure Abraham is scratching his head. Why would God give me this mysterious command? It is a mysterious command. This is out of character for Yahweh. But Abraham doesn't hesitate. You've got to go read Genesis 22 if you're not familiar with it. It'll humble you as you watch how quickly Abraham obeyed. Abraham gives us a tutorial on what real faith is. He got up early the next morning, got his boy, got two servants, and they're off to obey God. Got to love it. Again, I'm sure there's some questions in his mind, but that doesn't deter him from obedience, right? And again, Hebrews 11 tells us what his thinking is, what his calculus is. He, he just reckons that God can raise him from the dead. Um, so at this time, he's been walking with God for 40 or 50 years. Abraham has, okay? I don't know how long you've been walking with God. But the thing you learn when you're walking with God, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful. He's never not faithful. This is why Abraham doesn't hesitate. His God is faithful. His God is faithful. He doesn't hesitate, right? 
He doesn't hesitate. This is a, a mysterious command. He doesn't get it, really. Except he believes that God must want to magnify himself in the resurrecting Isaac. He just reckoned. He just figured that God would resurrect him. God's promises to Abraham were dependent upon a living, breathing, walking around, procreating Isaac. Not a dead, buried, decomposing Isaac. So Abraham fearlessly believed in the face of common sense. And he can do it. He knows God. You know, this always comes, the test always comes down to whether you really know him or not, right? Because if you know him, you can be Abraham. You can be, you, you can be like Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. You, you, you can do the, the impossible if you know God. If you're in that love relationship with God. You trust him to such a degree that you can and will do anything that he commands. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful narrative here. Abraham knows his God friend is a promise keeper, right? His God friend is a promise keeper. Abraham, who else was called a friend of God? Anybody remember? One other person. Moses. Only two guys. Although Jesus does talk about his, his 11 guys as friends and, and by extension us. So we understand that um, there's some application there. But Old Testament, only Abraham and Moses. And Abraham was willing to stake all that he had on the faithfulness of God. You know, that, 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 that Hebrews 11 text, 17 through 19, where it talks about Abraham was reckoning that God was simply able to raise the dead. There are nine verbs. I looked at, I looked at nine translations. There are nine verbs in, in nine different translations. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you, this, is, this was his calculus, and I want to see if it's yours. Abraham considered that God was able to do this thing. He believed that God was able to do this thing. He reasoned to himself that God could do this thing. He concluded God could do it. He assumed God could do it. He figured God could do it. He was certain that God could do it. He counted upon the fact that God could do what God says he'll do. He's a promise keeper. If you believe he's a promise keeper, you have no constraints. You have absolutely no constraints. And I'll tell you, that's why I'm not an accountant anymore and I'm a preacher. Because I realized I was free to obey God. I had every reason not to obey God. I had a family. I had kids at university. How can I quit my job? It could never add up. And it didn't add up. And people said, Jim, you're doing the wrong thing. This is not wise. You can't go to seminary at 42. What's wrong with you? What are you thinking? <laughs> and all I, could, all I could do was remember Hebrews 11:6. You must not only believe that I am, you must believe that I am what? I'm good. I'm good for my word. I'm good for my word. So there's a little personal testimony that's not in the notes. I, I, you know, no self-aggrandizement here, but it's just, it's just what happened. The only reason I was free to go is because I knew he was a promise keeper. And I'll tell you, when, I, when, we, when we took this church 18 years ago, uh, 
you know, the, the guy on the pulpit committee said, this is a long shot. You're really taking a risk coming over here. <laughs> and Karen and I looked at each other and we prayed about it. And we thought this would be a cool chance for God to show up. Wouldn't this be cool? It'd be cool to come over here and, and see what God does. We did, and he did. He showed up, right? 18 years later. A, a little personal testimony doesn't hurt, you know? You need to know that your pastor's not an empty suit, that he's believed a few things, right? He has some experience with God. Remember what we said last week about verse 17, talking about that dead faith that's by itself. This is what we're talking about over here uh, in verse 22. His, Abraham's faith was not by itself. It's, it's, it's obeying God, right? Uh, yeah, his, uh, his Genesis 15 faith is not by itself because here's Genesis 22. So it's real. It's tested. It's tried. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And who remembers what happened with Abraham? One of my favorite things. Who remembers what happened with Abraham as he started to sacrifice Isaac? Who remembers what happens? Anybody? You have to know this story, right? You have to know this story. <laughs> what? Amen. He did show up. I heard a, I heard a great uh, preacher, African-American preacher. Love this guy. And he said something I never have forgotten. He said, there was a ram in the bush, and there'll always be a ram in the bush. If you're obeying Yahweh, there'll always be a ram in the bush. And he got jacked up, man, and he was juiced, and he was, he was rocking and rolling, and I was loving it, man. I was loving it. Um, Jehovah Jireh, right? You look up the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. It means, I will see to it. God says to his people, I will see to it. And what I'm saying to you is you have all this license, beloved. You have, you have this incredible license to radically live your Christian faith. You're not constrained by anything except your own unbelief. We serve Jehovah Jireh. There's an interesting nuance, and I think this is important. I think this is where some of the controversy comes in between some denominations. Um, the, the nuance here in the Greek word translated justified in verses 21 and 24, it carries two general meanings, okay? The first meaning, Paul uses it in Romans 3 and 4 like this, to acquit or declare righteous. Okay, that's the clear meaning. And... Uh, in Paul's usage there in Romans 3 and 4. In James chapter 2, James is using it to vindicate or demonstrate as righteous. Okay? So these two nuances, you can go check me on this. It's in the Greek. It's in the Hebrew. You can check me on this. To be declared righteous is the way Paul is using it. To, be, uh, to vindicate or demonstrate righteousness is the way that James is using it. If you've been declared righteous, it will be demonstrated in your life. It's just not hard. It's just not 
hard. One theologian said it like this. James is not talking about the original imputation of righteousness to Abraham. He's talking about the visible manifestation of the imputed righteousness in the life of Abraham. Again, it spills out. And you got to love verse 23 again. Abraham was called the friend of God. Who remembers what Jesus said to the to the 11. Now we know the 12th, the 12th was a, an apostate, but um, Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what? Who remembers? You are my friends if you do what? If you go to church. No, you are my friends if you do what? Anybody remember? Keep my commandments. If you do what I command. It's the same thing James is talking about. You know, talkers and hearers, who cares? God cares about those who, who, who hear. And yes, they talk, but they also do. They do. They do. In every sphere of their life, they do the word, right? Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And if you don't do what I command, obviously you are not my friends. If you are not with me, you are against me. Where did I read that recently? I don't remember where it was. Somewhere in the Bible. It's in Luke because I've been reading through Luke and Jesus is talking. Um, Abraham did what God commanded. He just obeyed. It didn't make sense, but he obeyed. And I'm going to close with this last illustration. You guys know Rahab. Um, yeah, the second illustration of faith that saves. She's a harlot. But God really loves this harlot, right? She's mentioned in Hebrews 11. She's mentioned, I think, in Matthew 1. Is, do I have, where are my notes? Let me, let me double check my notes. I don't want to get that wrong. Yes, Matthew 1. In the genealogy of Jesus. She's mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews 11. God loves this harlot, right? <laughs> and we're all spiritual harlots. I mean, this is the perfect uh, illustration. You're a spiritual harlot just like I am. God loves this woman. You would think, well, at least it seems like the Lord could come up with a more dignified illustration. But he loves her. And I think this is one of the points that's being driven home here. Justifying faith is the same for everybody, whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute. Okay? <laughs> it works the same for everybody, whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute. It's always the same. It's always the same. The believer believes, and then the believer does. The believer lives it out. It's always like this. It is always like this. And what does Abraham's faith and Rahab's faith have in common? They believed and they acted. You can go back and read uh, Rahab's account, if you like, um, as the Jews come into the promised land. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. So how do we know that Abraham and Rahab's faith was real? Because it spilled out. It overflowed, as we talked about. As God's genius and love and joy uh, overflowed into the created order, as we've been saying, 
the born-again soul, it will spill out into the life. It's just what happens. You can't hold it down. You know, this should be our biggest struggle, trying to hold it down. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So God is graciously giving us this reality check on our faith this evening. So I'm just going to ask you, is your faith like Abraham and Rahab's? Is it real? Is it visible? Is it overflowing? Is it spilling out? Are you proactively believing and acting on the promises of God? Are you free to obey God because Jehovah Jireh is Jehovah Jireh? Right? There's always a ram in the bush for the obedient. There's always a ram in the bush. <laughs> Gotta love it. God is clearly saying, this is how I mean for you to live. So I'm exhorting you in this way. So it's a great, it's a great, to me, it's a great sermon or two right before Easter, right? Because we're going to see this, this amazing salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. Um, and what he's enabling us to do to become part of the, the kingdom of God and to be at work in the kingdom of God. It's astonishing. It's wonderful. It's breathtaking. So God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. So I just say to you, beloved, no more nonsense. If you're a Christian tonight, no more nonsense for you. God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. No more nonsense for anybody in here, right? No more nonsense. Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I was listening to MacArthur preach on this, this this week. And he went over to Hebrews 10. So I'm going to close with Hebrews 10. You can go with me if you like. Hebrews 10, verse 36. You know, these are the last few verses right before God defines and illustrates what real faith is. Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 10, 36. The writer of Hebrews says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, there it is, right? When you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. <laughs> Abraham believed the promise. He did the will of God and then he received the promise. This is how it works in God's economy. Verse 37. For yet in a very little while, you only have to, hey, here's the thing. You only have to believe and obey for a little while. It's only a little while because we're out of here. You know, it's just for a little while. You don't have to really believe and obey very long because you and I are out of here. We're going to be dead soon. And, you know, you backhandedly can read that. You don't have a lot to do here. But, 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 but while you're here, do it. <laughs> right? But anyway, he says, he says, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Revelation Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Abraham did not shrink back. Rahab did not shrink back. They believed and they obeyed. And this is what God is exhorting us to do tonight. And then verse 39, but we are not... Right. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Amen. 
I love James too. There's, it's such, it's just, there's just such clarity here. There's such clarity here. It's such an important message for the modern church. So next week's Easter, I have learned as an international pastor,